From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To celebrate women who've excelled in science, technology, engineering, and math, the Smithsonian made life-size statues of living women. Two of those women join us. Jenny and I both got to go to Washington, D.C. and meet our orange body doubles. Um, It was really surreal. Neither of us ever dreamed or expected to have a statue in this life. Hear about their careers in wildfire science, ski boot design, and robotics. Then, the new West Side Story is up for a slew of Oscars. A Colorado man helped bring it into the 21st century. The new movie purposely makes gentrification part of the conflict, right? And it also, it gives the Jets a reason to be so angry. I'm Claire from Castle Rock. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. I'm from Fruta. From Wheat Ridge. From Sedalia. Genesee. Kiowa. My wife and I live in Boulder. In Grand Junction. Carbondale. Frankstown. Windsor, Colorado. Hi, this is Amanda in Loveland, and I support Colorado Public Radio because it is just that. It's publicly funded by the people who listen to it, and I think that should be very valued in our society today. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Women are underrepresented in STEM careers, science, technology, engineering, and math. You know what else they're underrepresented in? Statuary. Male figures tend to be cast. We're going to start with two Coloradans who are bucking both those trends. They're part of a show from the Smithsonian celebrating female STEM innovators, Jenny Briggs is a wildfire scientist turned dean at the Colorado School of Mines. Hi, Jenny. Hi there. And Sarah Wilson is an engineer with Tortuga Ag Tech, a robotics company based in Denver. She's also a former ski boot designer. Hi, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having us. Before we talk about your backgrounds, this show with the Smithsonian features life-size statues of you both. A panel of middle and high school girls chose to feature the both of you. How did it feel when you learned you'd be included, Sarah? Well, so the initial application process for the If Then program didn't mention anything about turning into 3D printed statues. (laughs) We were signing up to do education and outreach work with Girls in STEM, which is something that Jenny and I are both uh, very passionate about. But the statue bit was definitely a surprise, um, a very surreal one at that. Yeah, I'm looking at these statues now. They appear to have been printed in orange. So... You, I don't know. You, well, you don't look like safety cones exactly, but uh, Jenny, Jenny, what was your reaction? Well, orange definitely matches the color of a safety vest that I wore in the field for many, many years. And it's the color of fire, which fit with my primary career. So I love the orange. And at first we weren't sure of the bigger goal, but when we went to DC and we saw these statues, 120 sort of glowing at us from every corner of certain museum grounds and hallways, we could tell why they were orange. They really spark 
curiosity and attention and excitement, especially among the smaller people, the kids that we were hoping to connect with. So it was amazing to see that. The smaller people who are definitely smaller than the statues and looking up to you, both, I guess, literally and figuratively. Sarah, your statue has you posing in ski gear. How were these created? Did you kind of stand and have to do a model situation? Well, as I mentioned, we weren't given a ton of heads up that these were being made. We were told to bring uh, some props related to our careers. And then when we were told we were going to be turned into statues, they had us stand in this little booth that takes a 3D body scan, kind of like the little uh, domes at the airport that Ah, scan you um, when you go through security. And I think there's about 200 cameras in this dome and it just takes a bunch of pictures from different angles and stitches it all together on the computer to create the 3D model that gets sent to the 3D printer. Um, But the whole process from us only took, I don't know, 10 or 15 seconds. Uh, Yeah, Sarah has this great skiing pose and she has a past life and present life as an amazing skier. And I think you hold your boots and helmet as your props. And I had a big backpack and a clipboard and a tape and tools of our trade we were told to bring, and they became part of the statues. Well, this uh, conversation now just begging for more about your experiences in the field. Sarah, we can start with your background in ski boot design. This was true of your former life before joining this robotics company. Do I have it right that it was rare to be a woman in that field and not always comfortable? Yeah, I um, actually started my career as a professional skier. I was skiing on the Freeride World Qualifier Circuit and also working as a ski instructor and definitely got some sideways glances and questions about being um, a woman in that particular discipline of skiing. And especially when I expressed interest in going into Uh, ski tech, there are really not a lot of women in the hard goods design side of things. So looking at building better ski boots, building better skis, Hmm. um, and definitely received my fair share of discouragement on that angle and decided to approach it from, from engineering as opposed to the more traditional product development career paths when I got into that. Did you notice that discouragement coming from men, women, both? You know, I think that discouragement in a lot of ways is more societal. When you find yourself um, among an underrepresented group, whether that's a woman in a competition field that is dominated by men or a woman in engineering school where you're one of only a handful in the classroom, there can be a lot of pressures and sort of subtle hints that maybe this is doing something unexpected. Mm. Um, The discouragement isn't always someone saying no to your face. Sometimes that happens and and I've had it happen and I'm sure Jenny's had it happen as well, but it it can be much more covert and ever present than that. Wow. Yeah. It's almost environmental. It's almost so ubiquitous. It feels like it's constantly around you almost. It is. Um, I think it's everything from how women are portrayed in media. When you open a science textbook, what is the picture of the scientist that's looking out of those pages at you? Um, Who is shown on television as being an expert in various fields? Those hints at representation can kind of get under your skin when you're a young woman and getting into a STEM career. Okay, Jenny Briggs, 
What, what were the props again? It was uh, your clipboard. What else? <laughs> I had a big backpack stuffed with field gear. Yeah. And then I had a tape called a diameter breast height measuring tape for trees, um, which we use to measure trees diameter circumference by giving them kind of a big hug. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And so what was the nature of your work and what did it feel like to be a woman in that space? Well, I started out in um, forest biology and fire science and I was prompted in that direction. I actually grew up in England where it's really wet and rainy and damp and there's very, very few fires. And I moved to California for college in the middle of wildfire season. I remember the hills were burning around my campus. My uncle's home burned down. And when I started grad school in Nevada, the Sierras and the Great Basin were burning. So I had a lot of interest in this wild phenomenon of fire that's a natural process and also a hazard to people and communities and water and and animals. And I had grown up really curious about animals and outdoors a lot, kind of tracking wildlife in a small way as a kid. So I wanted to figure out how does fire affect wildlife in these flammable forests and and people as well. That's not an easy field, by the way. There must be a lot of grief in a field like that. Yeah. Oh, boy. I feel like I needed a I need a Ph.D. in psychology as well as biology and politics, some of the things I encountered that layer on top of the science or displace science in times of crisis and danger and human safety must come first. But it, it, so it's been a really complex and interesting field. And I wouldn't say my time has passed in that field. I'm still actively working and publishing with colleagues on a number of projects in the realm of fire and forest science, hmm. but I have stepped into a different day job um, But anyway, um, kind of through the years when I majored in ecology, it was about a 50-50 mix of men and women. And then when I selected forestry and fire as my specialties, I was outnumbered by male colleagues, typically. Certainly in the world of fire, there are not many female firefighters or fire managers, forest managers. And I encountered nothing but respect and positive treatment from most of my male colleagues in those fields. But I did find, as Sarah did, this kind of general social sort of surprise and concern. This sounds dangerous. This sounds risky. Don't you have little kids? When I became a mom, how can you be out here? Who's taking care of your babies? Aren't you worried you'll get hurt? And so a lot of that disproportionately, I think, came to a female fire scientist versus a male fire scientist. And I really wanted to prove those stereotypes should end. And, you know, um, I've tried to push back against some of them along the way. My husband is a field scientist and he didn't receive the same types of questions and sometimes an implied critique that his priorities were off um, or unusual. What you say there reminds me so much of how women face the question of how do you juggle it all when they have kids? And men are so rarely asked that question. There are just inherent Mm -hmm. assumptions around these things. I read that in the 10 biggest U.S. cities in 2016, there were less than half a dozen statues of women. 
Have you both stood with your statues and what was the experience like? Sarah? Jenny and I both got to go to Washington, D.C. at the beginning of March um, and meet our orange body doubles. Um, It was really surreal. Neither of us ever dreamed or expected to have a statue in this life. And so to get to stand next to a life-size bright orange version of yourself was certainly bizarre and kind of disorienting. (laughs) But I think... As soon as I started seeing kids, little girls, um, some of the families that were at the museums that weekend, uh, seeing the statues, interacting with the statues, coming up to us and saying how cool it was that we're real live humans um, and it wasn't all historical figures, um, you know, the, the Marie Curies of the world, just to see that moment of spark and light of wow, this is something that I could be when I grow up was really, really incredible and beautiful and took a lot of the the discomfort out of having a, a statue. Hmm. Jenny, what was your experience? Yeah, I echo that. And we were also part of a big team. And I would love to shout out our four other Colorado colleagues that were featured in the DC exhibit as part of the program. So we were kind of a contingent there representing our state and there are 120 total women. So it was like being part of a giant team of compatriots. Um, It was amazing. And I loved seeing that orange glow from behind fences and through hedges and around corners in the museum. It was really fabulous. And yeah, kids were marching up to us. I would ask them about their favorite animals or the things they want to investigate. And they had a lot of ideas Um, a lot of things already figured out to share. And so I'm hopeful that they won't experience, the younger generations may not even experience some of the awkward stereotypes or indirect and direct messages of taking a different path that maybe some of us have encountered. Hmm. So it gave me a great sense of optimism and fun for the future too. Did y'all know each other before this? Not really. We we joke that the generous benefactor behind the program, Lida Hill, the philanthropist, she brought many of us together and we forged great bonds. I would love to say that because, at, to your earlier questions, most of the women in the program, 120, had been in male-dominated fields or are in them, fields of education and career. Mm-hmm. And so when we met, it was like, We have been outnumbered in the same ways throughout our schooling and our careers in many cases. And now we're all together and we have that shared history and perseverance. And it was like finding a tribe. Um, We also had committed to outreach and education along the way. As Sarah alluded, that's part of what we're recognized for, not necessarily primary excellence in our STEM specialties. But in my case, I was discouraged a lot from doing outreach and education. It was viewed as taking away from my productivity as a research scientist. And it's true, there's only so many hours in a day. But I was determined to go help run my kids' school science fair or go to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and be part of the Girls in Science celebrations there every year and, you know, be part of all kinds of other things. And my male colleagues would say, don't do that, you know, it's distracting. Um, You're a scientist. So 
I'm really proud that I didn't listen. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm so thrilled that many other women took the same approach. And that's a big part of what's being celebrated in this exhibit. Okay, I am just going to try to put myself in your shoes for a moment. Sarah, if I were all of a sudden to meet a bunch of colleagues who were really, really good in their fields and maybe even in my field or a related one, I think I might be a little intimidated. Did you have any kind of like imposter syndrome? There's such a running joke among the women in this group about imposter syndrome because we have all had to fight to be where we are and often second-guessed, am I worthy of having a statue? Uh, but I think that Jenny really put the nail on the head that coming together and being in a group of women who are all so supportive and uplifting and encouraging of one another. And it's those traits that um, came into the, you know, the outreach component of this, mm -hmm. the reasons that we were selected to work with girls in the first place um, has really put a lot of that at ease. Now that said, we have been recognized in large part because of our relatability. The selection committee for the If Then program did uh, include a panel of middle school and high school girls, and they were looking for women who they saw as role models, um, that they could see themselves kind of stepping into a similar path or a similar career. I think a lot of times with STEM, if you only highlight the people who are truly the most accomplished and most successful, you run the risk of highlighting people who are intimidating and mm -hmm might look at that and say, oh my God, I could never do that. Or I got a B or a C in math. There's no way I can be a scientist. And so by really bringing out the, the normalcy of all of our lives and our careers, I think is, is a really, really important part of this. I almost hear you saying, look how boring I am. <laughs> <laughs> Ordinary, everyday, everyday STEM specialists. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure about that because, like, Sarah, in your biography that is included in the in the exhibit, I mean, is positively Renaissance woman-like. I think I'm going to quote it. Sarah is currently a robotics engineer. She didn't used to be, and she might not be forever. That's because Sarah believes in following her heart, and her heart has changed its mind a few times, uh, which seems like a nice way to end our conversation, and that is on the future. Sarah, what in robotics would you say you are most interested in as your career progresses? You know, I pivoted out of the ski industry and into robotics in large part because I felt climate change and water consumption in the West are becoming such critical problems for the mountains that I love to play in. Um, I'm really thrilled to be part of Tortuga AgTech's mission to make sustainable farming uh, more economically viable. We build robots that support uh, sustainable farming operations, particularly in strawberry growing. Hmm. Um, and as my career progresses, I am following my heart um, by pursuing things that are more focused on, on sustainability and climate change. And I want to continue to grow my career in that direction. And Jenny, what, what would you say the future holds for you? Uh, you guys are, aren't you writing a book together? 
Oh, we are working on a book. Yes, I'm really excited about that. We're highlighting some of the secrets and stories of girls and women in STEM in a chapter book for middle school girls, partly inspired by my daughter, Iris, who's almost 12, um, and all her friends across the country. (laughs) But I now work with graduate students at the School of Mines in Golden, which I love. And I feel that maybe they're the ones who will identify solutions or sustainable ways that we can live with and manage fire or any of the big natural but potentially destructive forces that shape our environment in states like Colorado. And I hear the connection in climate change for both of you. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, It's such an honor to meet people who have been turned into statues. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was an honor for us. Thanks so much for having us. Jenny Briggs is an assistant dean at Mines in Golden. Engineer Sarah Wilson is with Tortuga AgTech in Denver. They're two of the six Colorado women included in an exhibition at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. If Then She Can features 120 STEM innovators, all told. The other Colorado women are Adriana Bailey, an atmospheric scientist in Boulder, Kristen Lear, a Fort Collins bat biologist, aerospace engineer Nicole Sharp of Denver, and Joe Varner, a mammal biologist in Grand Junction. Our series on pain is about how Coloradans manage chronic pain or struggle to. Among the stories we've told so far, how painkillers can lead to the agony of addiction. I would judge myself and I would invalidate myself and call myself a coward. And and here's the worst thing. I promise you, Richard, as I'm looking into the mirror, that this will be the last pill that I take. And yet three or four hours later, my body screamed for another pill. And yet, opioids remain an important tool, as we'll hear soon in the series. We have also explored how psychologists are helping people reprogram their brains. We've known for a long time that psychological treatments can help take the edge off pain or help people live more gracefully with the pain. But what we found in this study was that a majority of people had their pain eliminated with a psychological treatment. And that is um, quite a provocative finding in my view. We are still seeking your stories of life with chronic pain, of ways perhaps you've found relief. Email us, coloradomatters at cpr.org, coloradomatters at cpr.org, or leave a message, 303-871-9191, extension 4480. So that's CPR's main number, extension 4480. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour, with telling a fuller story in West Side Story. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CBR News and KRCC. Hey, everybody, this is Jad Abumrad from Radio Lab. Sunday, April 17th, I'll be at Paramount Theater talking about the miracle of indoor plumbing. I promise you that will make sense if you come. Tickets on sale now at ParamountDenver.com. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner.
the iconic love song here from the new remake of West Side Story, which is up for seven Oscars at this Sunday's ceremony. The film is the third major attempt at the tale of interracial love and gang warfare, following a 1957 Broadway play and a 1961 movie. To this day, some people adore those early versions. Others see them as cesspools of stereotypes. This time around, director Steven Spielberg set out to correct some of those flaws. And for help, he created an advisory board, which included the chair of CU Boulder Cinema Studies Department, Ernesto Acevedo Munoz. Professor, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to join you. Tell me about your own interest in this musical. How far back does it go? As a Puerto Rican, West Side Story has always been part of my life. Some scholar once wrote uh, West Side Story was a sort of a Puerto Rican birth of a nation. It's the movie by which we are sort of introduced and made present in American popular culture and with all its uh, imperfections and its difficulties, it's been a cultural filter through which many, many Puerto Rican people in the United States come to be associated. My father was a drama teacher most of his life, so we went to theater, we went to movies, uh, we had a few albums from Broadway shows and a lot of albums from movie music. And West Side Story so was part of the of the soundtrack of our lives. Particularly the 1961, the, the movie album, not the Broadway album. It was part of our the, the soundscape of our home. The 1961 movie did bring Puerto Rican identity to the screen. The Sharks were a Puerto Rican gang up against the Jets who were white. But many critics view it as fatally flawed because of its representation of Puerto Ricans and Latinos in general. And of that original film, there, there was only one Puerto Rican actor. That was Rita Moreno. A massive underrepresentation, would it be fair to say, in the original film? Yes, an important um, underrepresentation that yet would not have been rare within the context of Hollywood filmmaking. The producers had hired an agency in Los Angeles that typically represented uh, Latino actors, but most of them would not have been of Puerto Rican descent. The, the only Puerto Rican born in the island uh, was Rita Moreno, and then she was surrounded by other assorted Latinos that were really in the background of the background, and by white actors in brown face, which was, however alarming, would have been the common practice for Hollywood at the time. Do you remember the first time you saw the movie thinking, those are actors in brown face? Probably. I, I must have been a teenager. Uh, yeah, I would have remembered, but I was more impressed by the fact that I heard the words Puerto Rico spoken in a movie than I was by seeing actors in brown face because that would have been normal. And actors with fake accents, too. With fake yeah. fake accents and, and brown face. And not only brown face, but they all had to wear a certain makeup that made them all look the same, kind of the same shade of brown. It wasn't only brown face, but it was the same brown face for everybody, including Rita Moreno, who is a fairly light-skinned Puerto Rican. We, we come in all colors, as you know. What do you feel when you see the original movie today? Is there still a part of you that appreciates it? 
Mm, yes, uh, largely. And I'll tell you, uh, my 2013 book, West Side Story of Cinema, is in part an assessment of the movie in large part in its quality as cinema, not as a sociological document or a sociological documentary. If I'm going to be interested in the, in a movie, I have to be interested in a movie visually. And the 1961, the original version of West Side Story is visually a stunning movie. This movie is just interesting to look at. And it also has all these other problems. There's a section of my book with the subheading, Must We Burn West Side Story? Uh, because of the injustices that it does in the representation of not just of Latinos, but also of queer Americans. We have the, the character of anybody's who is, who is a caricature uh, and is one of the white kids in the show. That aside, the visual quality of the movie does not go away. I should say the original version, film version, was nominated for cinematography. It won for cinematography, for yeah. sure. And production design and costume design, all the, all the visual elements, film editing, all the visual elements. I so appreciate you making a distinction between the sort of sociological aspects of a movie, documentary aspects of a movie, and the moviness, the cinematic qualities of it. You know, the neighborhood in the new film, in the remake of West Side Story, the neighborhood becomes a character. Yeah. I mean, certainly the scenes of the original West Side Story were very important, but I don't recall feeling that the neighborhood was quite as much a character in the original as in this new one. Do you want to speak to that a bit? You're right on target, Ryan, because uh, one of the commitments of the producers of the new movie was to render authenticity to the look of the neighborhood, to the sounds of the neighborhood, to the atmosphere, and in fact, some of the historical consultants that worked on the new film were specifically pointing down to things like even graffiti on the walls. Would it have been appropriate in the Puerto Rican barrio in 1957 to see that painting on the wall or to see that graffiti? Well, and of course, you have to think about what is happening to this neighborhood, to the neighbors, the displacement at this point, right? Right, which is also... Another matter that the original movie sort of brushes aside, not coincidentally, what little of the 1961 movie was filmed in New York City uh, was filmed in that stretch between like uh, West 63rd and West 68 or so where, where Lincoln Center stands now. But gentrification itself is not addressed in the 1961 movie. The new movie, the 2021 movie, purposely makes gentrification part of the conflict, right? And it also, it gives the Jets a reason to be so angry that they are literally being displaced. It's not just that more Puerto Ricans are moving to the neighborhood, is that the neighborhood itself is disappearing. Early on, I mean, this is one of the opening shots of the new film. You see that homes, tenements are about to be raised. Mm -hmm. And what's going to replace it is this sparkling new performance space called Lincoln Center. So the new movie's director, Steven Spielberg, went in saying that the stereotypes needed to go, that he wanted this film to be more sensitive 
Uh, and you were on this advisory committee that he created to help with that. Yes. Where does the movie still fall short? Well, I can tell you that there will always be naysayers uh, for some critics of West Side Story from the perspective of uh, sociological perspectives, also the cultural studies perspective. There will always be naysayers saying, well, look, here, here we go. Now Steven Spielberg is making the Puerto Ricans uh, dress up and you know dance. But regardless of the naysayers, the reality is that the new production went out of its way to put together this uh, community advisory board, we called it, composed of mm, historians, intellectuals, academics, artists, musicians, people from the neighborhood uh, who were there in part to see if we're going to do this, right? The mantra was, then let's do it right. Is it going to make everybody happy? No, because some people think that West Side Story shouldn't exist to begin with. Mm. There's always going to be controversy. But if West Side Story wasn't controversial, uh, we wouldn't be talking about it. It does have a resonance. West Side Story has never gone away because it strikes a nerve. And it strikes a nerve in part because it helps us not to have a perfect discussion, but it helps us to start a discussion about things that are still very resonant in American social relations. Race, ethnicity, gentrification, uh, tolerance. Poverty. Uh, poverty. But it's not by chance that suddenly West Side Story is relevant again. One of the songs that has come under the most criticism is America. The lyrics to the 1957 Broadway play were viewed as especially racist, uh, yeah. changed some in 1961, and then again in this iteration. Yes. Give us an example of one of the more recent changes. As you mentioned correctly, the 1957 version had essentially no, <laughs> no redeeming qualities. It was just, oh, life in Puerto Rico is terrible, and we're moving to the United States to have a, a life of conspicuous consumption, right? All the girls talk about is going shopping and having a washing machine and, and things of the sort. In 1961, that was adapted to make it much softer. So some of the most uh, damaging lyrics, for example, about gun violence in Puerto Rico, about hunger in Puerto Rico were substituted by somewhat softer lyrics. For example, the 1961 revised lyrics still start with Rita Moreno, with Anita singing the lines, uh, Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean. Uh, and that was softer than 57. I mean, that's not it, very soft, Professor. That's not very soft. Just, but, no. but then the 1961 lyrics is a real argument, right? The girls have a position. We, we love it here and we want to go shopping. And the boys have the opposite position. That was new to 61, right? The boys are, you know, terrible time in America, organized crime in America, everywhere grime in America. The girls say something like, uh, here you, you have, you're free to choose. And, and the boys say, yes, free to wait tables and shine shoes. So it has political bite, but it was still offensive to open. The new movie gets rid completely of 
for example, the specific line, Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink back in the ocean. And it picks up much softer lyrics like Puerto Rico, you lovely island, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. It's kinder to Puerto Rico. It's still an argument between the characters, but it doesn't open with burying the whole island under uh, under a pile of rubble. Okay, let's hear the first of those versions from And as we head to break, here's a bit of the new America. Puerto Rico, you lovely island, island of tropical breezes. The sharks also sing in the new movie. The original version of an important Puerto Rican anthem, right? That is new, and it's not only the Puerto Rican anthem, it is the specific lyrics of the Puerto Rican anthem that are pro-Puerto Rican independence. Most of those lyrics were written for the um, a failed revolutionary attempt in the 19th century against Spain. Uh, that lyric would have been, by law, prohibited in Puerto Rico and probably in the United States. But they do sing what we refer to as the the revolutionary lyrics, starting with the line, wake up Puerto Ricans, despierte borinqueños. Despierta de ese sueño, que es hora de luchar. A ese llamar patriótico, no arde tu corazón. Ven, no será simpático el ruido del cañón. Nosotros queremos la libertad. Nuestros machetes nos darán. How was it to see that as part of the new film? And, and by the way, it was, is it historically accurate? I'm just curious. The lyrics are accurate. I mean, I, I grew up within the independence movement, so I, I knew those lyrics when I was a child. Is it accurate to the 1950s context in New York? Yeah. Uh, more than you would imagine. We're looking at the mid-1950s. A large portion of the Puerto Rican independence movement had been based in uh, in New York at the time. Um, some of our listeners will surely remember the 1954 Puerto Rican nationalist shooting in the U.S. Congress 
where four Puerto Ricans went into the Congress chamber and fired shots and yelled, long live free Puerto Rico. That group was based in New York. Mm. So a lot of the roots of the Puerto Rican independence movement, the president of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party had been based in New York. Considering the specific context, uh, it not it would not have been out of place at all. Okay, boy, I'm so grateful for all that perspective, Professor. Um, so, in the new film, twenty actors who are Puerto Rican or of Puerto Rican descent uh, appear, including Ariana Dubose, who's nominated this year for Best Supporting Actress, and Rita Moreno, who won that award for the 1961 film. Uh, Moreno is back as an entirely new character in the story. She serves as executive producer. Uh, Moreno has called this new film the jewel in the crown of all of the versions. And yet, uh, Professor, at 90, she's still angry about what happened after the first film. Uh, She says she just wasn't offered any more major roles, telling BuzzFeed, quote, nobody gave a It broke my heart, absolutely broke my heart. How do you understand what happened to her after West Side Story, the original film? Well, Hollywood relies on on formulas. And uh, one of the most interesting things about the character of Anita, which we, most of us know through Rita Moreno's performance, is that she is both a rebel and a stereotype. Anita falls in a way, within what we would call the the Latin spitfire. She dances, she wears flashy clothes, she talks back, she argues with her boyfriend. I mean, and she's sexually active, we are led to understand in all versions of, of West Side Story. And so it takes a very, not just versatile, but it takes a very brave sort of actor to take on the role of Anita and then run away with it. And Rita Moreno is a magnificent example. But that comes with risks. It comes with risks. And because Anita is also something of a stereotype, Rita Moreno continued to be offered the Latin Spitfire types. And she did not want to do that. And for the better part of the next eight years or so, she had very, very few parts in movies. She just wouldn't accept the pigeonholing that comes with a part that is so iconic. And of course she was heartbroken. And of course she was disappointed. Here's the best part she's ever played. And also, if she wants to not be stereotyped, it's also an obstacle. Mm -hmm. The new role is Valentina. Um, And she is a maternal figure. She is in many ways, the conscience of the movie. Yeah. Do you want to speak a little bit to the new role and whether you liked the invention of it? It's one of the things that also seems part of the of the effort to maximize the diversification of this cast. There's no reason why a woman like Valentina would not be running the little candy store in this rundown neighborhood anyway. The movie makes the connection that she is widow to the white man who originally owned Doc's candy store, drugs uh, and drug store. Right. She, she's uh, part and, of a mixed that, family, a mixed marriage. 
but exactly and that would have been a mixed marriage in 1950s new york would have been rare but not impossible mm. and valentina being an entrepreneur is part of the shifting cultural and social landscape of the neighborhood but it also makes her a character that is ambiguous in some ways she's a maternal figure mostly to the jets not the sharks in her best scene, Ariana DeBose as Anita comes in to confront Valentina, right? You give shelter to these pigs. She says it in Spanish. Tú les das techo a estos puercos. Accusing Valentina of being a traitor. A traitor, right. Part of the problem. But it goes to the complexity of, of these characters. That even a, a new character as Valentina has to have a position and that position can be controversial it can be difficult she she refers to anita in that scene as mija which is to say my daughter and anita responds yo no soy tu hija i am not your daughter i'm using the the lines of dialogue in spanish because this was an important decision by the producers of this movie mm-hmm. that the spanish dialogue between the puerto rican characters when they were in their own element would not be subtitled in English, uh, which would have been in a way a further othering of these characters, making them even more others. And that was a very interesting decision that if I recall correctly, most of the members of the community advisory board, we agreed that that was the right thing to do. If English speaking audiences don't get it, that's their problem. And also for the most or, part, or it's their I mean, this opportun- is an increasingly this is an increasingly bilingual country anyway. Or it's their opportunity. If they're- or it's an opportunity. <laughs> if they don't get it, it's their problem. Besides, I mean, they're screaming at each other. Whatever they're saying, <laughs> you can figure it out. You get the context. That's the beauty of the, the simplicity. I mean, I go to, you know, I go to see German operas. I don't speak German. I understand everything <laughs> that's happening because they're screaming at each other. With a little bit of effort, we can be a little more inclusive culturally. We all can. Well, Professor, <laughs> it's been fun to think of this movie uh, through your eyes. Thank you, Ryan. You've been very kind to have me, and I'm very happy to be part of the order of the show. Ernesto Acevedo Munoz is chair of film studies at CU Boulder and the author of West Side Story as Cinema, The Making and Impact of an American Masterpiece. Steven Spielberg's remake is nominated for seven Oscars at this Sunday's Academy Awards. There's a place for us. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CBR News and KRCC.